Welcome to the Purple Political Breakdown. I am glad you are here and I'm glad you are listening to today's podcast episode. My mission in each and every one of these episodes is to really focus on the solutions to some of the biggest questions and most controversial topics going on in our current society. I feel like most of these conversations are not truly being discussed in a more logical and respectful manner due to the political toxicity that goes on with both the left and the right, both the Democrats and the Republicans. In this podcast, I don't care about any of that. I am focused on the solutions. I'm focused on bridging gaps. If you want to join me on this journey, if you want to discuss some of the most important topics, if you are tired of the political toxicity and negativity from both sides, please support this channel, share the podcast, and go to my website, www.purplepoliticalbreakdown.com. I appreciate the support. I'll continue to make content and hopefully we can start bridging these gaps and focusing on real issues going on in our world. Welcome to the Purple Political Breakdown. How you doing? How's your day been? I'm your host, Riddell Lewis. We are back at it again. And today we're doing episode number 65. We have a very interesting conversation with our guest, Gary Grossman. And I will tell you a little things. Um, There's a lot of plans as December is here. There's a lot of interesting content ideas for the future. Interesting things that we plan to do for the podcast. So stay tuned for that. Rate it five stars. Follow the website www.purplepoliticalbreakdown.com to get all the information. But let's start off by introducing our guests. So in addition to the best-selling executive series... Grossman wrote the international award-winning Old Earth, a geological thriller that spans all of time. With Red Hotel and Red Deception, his collaborations with Ed Fuller, Gary Grossman entered a new realm of globe-hopping thriller writing. Grossman has contributed to the New York Times and the Boston Globe and was a communist for columnist, columnist, not communist, columnist for the Boston Herald American. He covered presidential campaigns for WBZ TV in Boston. He's an Emmy Award winning network television producer, a print and television journalist, a novelist, and a film and TV historian. His career has included stints producing for NBC News, CNN, ABC, CBS, NBC, Fox, PBS, and 36 cable networks. He serves as a chair of the Government Affairs Committee for the Caucus for Producers writers and directors and is a member of the international thriller writer association and grossman has taught at emerson college boston university usc and currently teaches at leola marymount university so a lot of information so let's bring on our guest gary grossman how you doing hi well great to be here and um you know, I'm going to make sure my wife watches this so that she remembers all the things that I've done. Maybe the kids, too. <laughs> Thank Fair you. Very yeah, nice. no problem. Uh, I think uh, this will be an interesting conversation. Uh, as everybody knows, the theme of my podcast is political solutions without political bias. So all these perspectives and the experience from not only myself, but all the guests we bring on can definitely be enlightening for the for the guests that are listening hopefully they they gain something from it at the end of the day that's the goal so 
we start off with some baseline questions with all the guests to kind of figure out who they are, of course. So we'll start off this one, Gary. What is your political affiliation? I am a Democrat. I grew up in a Rockefeller Republican home. So I think from New York State in a small town in upstate New York in the Hudson Valley, um, my mom worked in uh, government. Uh, she was a campaign manager for a local mayor and a, and a, a representative running for Congress. Uh, my dad worked in law enforcement. And in those days, I have to say, um, the Republican Party is, it was a different Republican Party than it is today. Um, I think a turning point for my mother especially was um, when she said, uh, Richard Nixon has changed, Gary. You should feel better about Richard Nixon. And the turning point for her was when she realized, in fact, I believe and she believed Richard Nixon had not changed. And she began looking, as my dad did, back at their Democratic roots from the FDR years. But I grew up in a very enlightened home. Politics was talked about all the time. Uh, in the morning, I watched the Today Show as a kid before school. At night, I watched Huntley Brinkley and Walter Cronkite. Uh, we talked about news. We were involved in local politics. So um, my politics are maybe more centrist, a Democrat. And uh, maybe I'm jumping ahead to Red Chaos somewhat and all the executive books, starting with executive actions. But we never really, or I never really talk about what political affiliation the president has and what his cabinet has. I write about the president and the cabinet that I wish we often had. Oh, that's a fair perspective, especially considering even now from the period that you're referring to how much the Republicans and Democrats have changed even more so nowadays to the point where I, I'll, I've made a podcast episode about it that they're kind of losing their identity. They don't even know who they are. They just know who they're aligned with for the most part nowadays, uh, which is a potentially problematic thing, especially when we try to come up with solutions for the betterment of the country, of society as a whole. Also, it's very interesting uh, the, the kind of background you came from in terms of your consumption of politics, especially considering to current society when I'm thinking of the young getting their politics through social media, which is much more unvetted, raw information, not, don't know if it's a reliable source, but just a lot of raw opinions about things going on. And if I'm being honest, from my perspective, when I see a lot of these opinions on social media, a lot of these people just don't know what they're talking about. They're just saying things based on what they think is going on. So it's uh, interesting how now we're more of a social media, gain a lot of our information from social media versus you. You said you were getting your information from uh, television, today, uh, the Today Show stuff. Uh, television and radio. I listened to shortwave radio growing up. I was a ham radio operator when I was 12. And I was using Morse code to reach out to people I could never see, but I could hear through Morse code, different parts of the country, different parts of the world. I listened to Radio Moscow growing up as a kid and the BBC and the furthest away I got, I think was probably listening to pulling in signals from uh, Australia. I listened to the Vatican, uh, Ghana, uh, uh, Radio Habana Cuba as well, before and after Castro. Um, and 
well, I think really related to this, and there's a through through line to everything happily in what I've done. I went from being a ham radio operator to writing the local radio station general manager in our hometown. We had a middle of the road station and all of us growing up were listening to WABC in New York, Cousin Brucie, rock music, WBZ in Boston, Bruce Bradley, w, or KD, uh, what was it, uh, WKBW in Buffalo and WLS in Chicago. And I wrote the general manager and asking him, well, we should have music on this local station that we'll listen to and maybe some school news. And on a day, on a day that he was either very sober or very drunk, he called me up and said, okay, you start Monday. I was 15 years old and I became a disc jockey and an announcer on the local station. No one will ever hear those broadcasts again, trust me. But soon um, I became the, um, the only kid in town who was, you know, broadcasting on the radio to uh, Columbia and Greene County. I had a voice that was going out there, and I like to think that I used it wisely, but also played top 40 music. Today, everybody's got that voice. Right. Everybody. It's through social media. It's through Instagram. It's, you know, you name it, you, we, we both use it. But everybody has a voice. The trouble is, not everyone has something to say. And that word gets spread around really fast. Was it, um, and I hope I get the quote right, a Mark Twain who said that a lie can travel around the world and half the time that the truth is trying to put its boots on. Mm. Well, you know, that goes back to the McCarthy era. It goes back to a lot of what we hear today, you know, through social media. Lies get out there. Everyone has a voice. Where's the responsibility? Hard to determine. That's a great point. And I want to be clear to the audience that's listening. I criticize and critique mainstream media all the time for some of the things that they do. But we need to understand the difference between a working business slash corporation that has a process of getting and vetting information versus someone's raw opinion on something that I've seen probably when they're scrolling through social media. There's regardless of what you think about mainstream media, unless someone takes the time and effort to really understand what they're talking about, 95% of the people you're seeing on social media don't know what they're talking about because that's just not their field. They're not spending all day looking through politics, news, all the different perspectives, primary, secondary, tertiary sources. That's not, not what they do. So I think that nuance is very important for people to understand when they're seeing the information. They could be right. It's very possible. But just because one person's right when you see them on TikTok doesn't mean the next person you're about to see on TikTok again is also going to be right. And that's oh, the I distinction they have to make. Complete, completely agree. Look, we call them talking heads. They are. And I'm one right now here with you, a talking Same. head. Um, but I'm I'm not going to suggest that I'm an expert. I have opinions. So many of those people you're talking about, Radal, are put them out there, put themselves out there as experts. And they're not they should be labeled as non-experts. One of the one of the things I rail against 
And I would be thrilled if people pick this up. Uh, and I say this as an as a as an observer of news and as a reporter and an interpreter of news now through novels. I did it for years through documentary films for the History Channel and A and E and National Geographic, other channels, NBC News. Um, I wish we would call conspiracy theories conspiracy lies. That's what I would recommend. It's not a theory when you're telling a lie. You're telling a lie. And when somebody does that, let's back it up. Let's have the proof that it's a lie. But let's just not put people on the air who are using that bully pulpit just to spew lies or with the excuse maybe that it's conspiracy theories. Now, I haven't gotten a lot of people to use that term, so, uh, but that's, that's my opinion. And to get to mainstream media, mainstream media 24-7, well, uh, hit a couple of other things. There's news 24-7. No, I take that back. There's noise 24-7. It's not news 24-7. And when I was coming up in the business, we had news on the radio on the hour and on the half hour required by all radio stations. And that began to change and FM came along and it was just music, but we got news. We, we learned what was happening around the world. Go to an MSNBC and then and Fox and news nation and any of the others, you're going to be hearing opinion all day long, but you're not getting the news of the world news of the world. I go to the BBC now, you know, on, 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 uh, on my cell phone. Um, that's where I can get, oh, wait, that's happened? Or I'll dig down harder. Today, I think the responsibility falls on us to, be, to aggregate what we're here, the news sources, and All to right. and make, ju make judgments. Because we can't make judgments if we just follow one channel. Very true. Uh, that plays into the important value of hearing all these different perspectives, because I'm sure the people know when information comes out, there is going to be an innate viewpoint that it's going to be set through and based off their viewpoint will dictate how they kind of relay the facts and even formulate uh, formulate the facts in their article, potentially, whether that's right or wrong is up for the people to decide, of course. But it's always smart to have a slew of sources to make sure that things kind of cross-reference each other to the point where you get the fullest picture as possible. Absolutely. So that leads into my next question. It, we kind of touched upon it a little bit, but what do you think about the, the current state of politics? Do you believe, and I always use this caveat, do you think we are the most divided we've ever been since the Civil War in terms of political discourse? In a short answer, yes, I absolutely do. Uh, it depresses me. It worries me. Uh, we are, uh, in my thinking, uh, we're in a period where we are all in different silos. And silos tend not to have windows. 
I haven't seen many silos on farms that have windows where you can look out to the other silo. You're in, the grain's there with you. It's tall. It's not, it's not wide. It's there. It's, you know, it's like this. We need to be more horizontal. We're all vertical right now. We're in those silos with different points of view um, that don't accept another point of view or won't listen to another point of view. That worries me completely, absolutely completely. We're at a point and an inflection point in this country where we could lose everything we believe in uh, on both sides of the aisle. And there shouldn't just be two sides of the aisle, but people tend to vote against their best interest, in my opinion. Um, and don't listen to other opinions. Now I teach college too, and I teach screenwriting and, and filmmaking. And there, I have students from China occasionally, well, more than occasionally these days. And there are times where a student will say, hey, this is what I'd like to write. This is what I would like to make as my film. And I sit down with them privately and say, are you sure that's safe? Because if people back home find that's what you're going to be writing about, is that a good thing? Creatively, I think it's wonderful that they want to explore that. But there are people here who watch them. And there are people here who monitor their, their or people there who monitor their social media. If they write about something that is, quote unquote, against the state or antithetical to uh, what the acceptable beliefs are, uh, bad things can happen. I'm worried about that happening here. Honestly, I'm really worried. There was a book of 1935, 36 um, called It Can't Happen Here. Uh, it became very popular again a few years ago. Um, I read it when I was in college, and it's about a fascist regime taking hold in the United States. What it was really doing was predicting what was happening in Germany, but it was done as fiction. Well. We see what's happening around the world, and the world is changing. And is it our responsibility to get into everybody else's business? No, but we have a big influence. And how we manage that, you're making me think a lot, so there are the pauses there. Uh, how we manage that is, I think, what we do in the voting booth. I actually very much agree, um, which is ironic. And of course, people, if you guys are listening and if you already were listening to the last, um, you know, interview discussion episode with the guest, I had Sarah Wolk on and uh, she's one of the individuals who's in charge of spreading the message of a better voting initiative. And they told me a strategy and I'm very much in favor with the strategy. I might be working with more of their people actually. And it's called star voting, a way of, of voting that can help translate people's interests and needs to politics, basically, where you're choosing individuals. That's not lesser two evils, but you're choosing individuals that you think is in the betterment of the country. So I think voting is definitely a, a big step voting reform based on how we do it now to a more representative style can be a big uh, improvement in terms of politics for sure. Uh, but in terms of what you said in, in the 
potentialist fascist regime that can awake from American government. Ultimately, there is a there is a worry because checks and balances or the system put in place to ensure stuff like this doesn't happen. And for mm-hmm. the most part, we've had both sides on the aisle. Most of the people in the middle really just kind of want to live their lives and don't want the federal government to go out of control. So that's just the people who don't pay attention to politics, but know they don't want the government to go crazy. But the left and the right, the Democrats and Republicans, they're the ones in power. And usually it's okay, a little bit more government power for, you know, social programs to help the people. And the people on the right is like, nah, less federal power, more state power. But recently, there is a worry because obviously the left is still going to say very similar things that they've said, even though there are a lot of radical lefties that are saying, I hate America or whatever. But now there are people on the right that might be leaning into that same similar attitude to the point where they're like, Maybe we need to put more power in the federal government. We have people like Donald Trump who wants to initiate more of his executive powers, making the executive branch more powerful. We have other people um, referring to one of the recent issues on the Republican debate panel was in reference to abortion. And regardless of how you feel about abortion, some of the representatives said things like, you know, I'm going to put an executive order to ban abortion across the entire country. That's an overuse of your power as the president. We got some yeah. other people doing other similar things. So they want to expand the power of the federal government. So to kind of play this full circle, if we have Democrats who want to increase the power of the federal government and we have Republicans who want to increase the power of the federal government, then that plays to a very dangerous game, which is something we even our forefathers, the founding fathers never wanted is the federal government to be extremely powerful. So there, there's some, there's something to be said there that we gotta, we gotta fix that. Of course, I, I definitely agree to that. I, I, I totally agree, and I don't know what the solution is, other than, well, I'll go back to the Rockefeller Republican era, and when I was a kid, we went to, uh, my parents took me to Washington. We went to the Capitol, and I remember seeing Senator Everett Dirksen. He was as tall as the Washington Monument to me, uh, and and, and ha- statuesque in terms of what he represented as well. Uh, and I, I knew about him through news, and I had read things, and I, you know, we had, used to have a thing called My Weekly Reader in school, which was a weekly newspaper that was had politics in it, news and science. I think these days they'd be worried about what they could put into that and have it one newspaper going to schools all around the country. In those days, it was not a problem. But, you know, I remember seeing Everett Dirksen. I remember talking with my parents about the, and looking at, you know, Rockefeller, who was interesting and and committed and flawed and all the things that people can be. But there was a social consciousness that brought many, many people to politics. These year, these years, these days, I think it's harder to find those kinds of people who will be willing to run, who can stand up to the left extreme and stand up to the right extreme and and be faithful to the Constitution. Yes, represent their constituency, but they also are part of a greater government. And I think we have a lot of flawed people in Congress. That's a long answer for for that last sentence. No, that's very fair. 
So with that said, something earlier you mentioned is um, regarding the two parties and whether or not that's something we should have. What is your opinion about third parties? Do you think they are important for um, American politics, for our society? Well, I'll give you uh, two answers. One is a novelist, and they're great because a third party will absolutely upset everything and create great fiction for for me in novels. Um, as a as a voter, they tend to always sway an election. Never um, in 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 ways. Well, I call them dangerous. Well, in ways that uh, take away a true vote from a winner, potential winner. Um, they, uh, I would rather see third party politicians, third party politicians, uh, have more influence within both parties than than a than a uh, third party. But um, unlike uh, Samantha in Bewitched, you know, uh, I or whatever she did with her nose, I can't twitch my nose or do that, and or I dream of genie and uh, and and make things work better. But I think they. They will raise a level of discussion, but ultimately they affect, in my regard, my mind, uh, elections negatively. What, what's your opinion? I mean, that's a fair assessment based on how things work right now. Um, as we know, for the most part, third parties and independents uh, take away votes from the side that they align with closest. The perfect example going on right now for the federal election is that Robert F. Kennedy is going to be taking a lot of votes away from Joe Biden and the Democratic Party because he's running as an independent. My thing is, I think the third parties have a lot of value, especially the moderates, the, the centrists, the ones that can bring a more nuanced position based, uh, based off whatever issue that's being discussed. And to kind of reiterate back something that I was talking about earlier in terms of star voting in order for them to truly have value voting reform would have to be implemented and the the great thing about star voting is when you vote when you give a star rating of each of the candidates that are about to go up you are able to give a multiple rankings of any and whichever candidate is on the ballot at that time are you talking about ranked, ranked balloting then? Is that so, the same or that's different? They're different. It is a strategy, um, another nuanced strategy. Uh, mm -hmm. I, after speaking with the uh, Sarah about it a little bit more, ranked choice voting, which is probably the most popular alternate voting method right now, is actually rather inefficient and is not the greatest in terms of what we want. Star voting is think about it as a improved method of what ranked choice voting wants to be star voting allows people to give a five-star rating on any and all candidates on the ballot you could do it for multiple candidates so you never have to worry about lesser two evils or any of that it's like this guy's not going to win so i'm not going to vote nope your vote matters your opinion matters so you put it for each candidate that you care about and that includes third party candidates as well. So you will never feel that your certain people's uh, value is 
basically none because they have no chance of winning. Even if right now they have no chance of winning, the fact that you're giving value to what your preferences are saying at that particular mm-hmm. time, right now, as time goes by, if something like this is implemented, those other candidates, the people are going to recognize, one, my vote matters, so more people will vote. Two, I'm going to start voting my conscience and voting my, my personal opinion, so more potential people that's just not the popular names like a Hillary or Donald Trump will get favor in these elections. So this type of voting reform and star voting would be a way to make third parties actually matter in politics at every level. So that's something that I'm I'm a big advocate for as of right now. And I would say at every level starts at the local level where also third party voices really can have more impact. Uh, Radel, is anyone using this system yet? It's intriguing. I had not known about it, so I want to discover more. Yeah, so they are starting to implement it. Um, I forget the state that it's in. I believe, I could be wrong, but I believe they're doing stuff in uh, Oregon, which is where it was uh, founded. It could be a different state, but I feel like it started with the O, so I'm going to go with Oregon. If I'm wrong, you could just... Relook at episode number uh, 64, I believe, where I had Sarah on and she broke everything down for us. But um, yeah, she she they're starting to implement it there. They uh, they haven't put it. They haven't gotten it passed at like the state level or anything, but they've gotten it passed in like different like sections where voting matters. Um, I don't want to be able to tell you the names of all those things, but there are different areas that are utilizing this method throughout in a little much more minor consideration but they're getting more and more approval off its uh usage on the state and they're hoping after they get enough approval of enough signatures to officially adapt it for a district voting for what uh whatever candidate is in that specific district so there's a relatively new thing that has been introduced. I think they got introduced sometime in the 2010s, but they're already starting to make waves as a system that has a lot of value, a lot of portability, a lot of adaptability and viability. So it's uh, definitely starting off strong as of right now. I will, I will, I've written it down and I'm going to watch episode 64 and I, you've introduced me to something new. May I ask you a question? What was your political awakening? And was there one candidate who awakened you? So political awakening is an interesting question because I've not always been into politics, but I've always I've definitely kind of levied around the left and the right consistently because of my background being, um, you know, minority, being living on the islands growing up Christian, being in the military, being in a military family, going to a liberal school. So I've been through a lot of sways from the left and the right consistently. And when I went to college, I was thinking potentially getting into politics as uh, the job because I thought it would be the most interesting. Uh, So I majored in politics, started learning more about politics, uh, decided against not going into politics because I was like, I don't want to sacrifice my values to just win a pol- um, you know, political position. And then after I got out of college and got out the military, I was able to kind of just 
be with my thoughts. And I saw a lot of interesting things on social media, on YouTube, on podcasts of these different perspectives. I've heard, saw content from the left. I've saw content from the right. And my mind started turning basically. And I okay. heard things from the left. And I was like, there's some good points here, but I don't agree here. I heard some points on the right. There's some good things here. And constantly learn, seeing these different perspectives and having all these conversations, my mind was able to come to a very interesting conclusion that a lot of this is much more nuanced that people like to make. It's not so black and white from both sides. This kind of ignorant that people think that their way is the best way every single way. And once I started going that and I was like, I'm going to start this podcast and getting more and more knowledge. The biggest thing when it came down to it, even though I think that I have a very good ability to detach emotions from positions. So I never really am sold on a position wholeheartedly. So that's like, a, I guess, a unique characteristic for me. And um, I'm a pretty good critical thinker as well. The biggest thing for anybody, though, regardless if you're like me or not, is constant conversations and listening to different perspectives. And right. once you do that, you're able to open up how how you're thinking and realize that, hey, I'm looking at the situation when it comes down to our criminal justice system. And although I think these things are bad, when I take a step back, I realize it's much more complicated than I initially thought. And it's much more nuanced. And understanding how we got here is also important. So seeing these different perspectives consistently and having all these conversations probably would be my best answer for like a political awakening. And I'm sorry for the phone call. My wife is out and I'm just uh, texting her back, but I'm with you. No uh, I'm on my interview or discussion. We're having a discussion. Um, and the um, kind of natural follow-up is for me, because I'm enjoying that this is a discussion, uh, not just an interview, um, is that in... In regard to talk radio, when I was in radio, we had the fairness doctrine. We had, um, it, it was equal opportunity for candidates running, but it was equal time for diff people with different positions. Uh, and uh, that's my wife uh, reminding me something, <laughs> and I'll take care of that later. Life. Uh, is is all about these texts now, um, Fair enough. but we had we had the fairness doctrine. We don't have that anymore. So another reason that there's so many um, silos is that we have left radio and right wing radio, and very little in the middle. So people have their favorite radio channels broadcasting or streaming one point of view and reinforced in that silo by television. Um, what do you think should, because I guess what you're saying, or not I guess, but I hear what you're saying to some extent, and, and by the way, it is a red flag to, to many people on both sides of the aisle again. Uh, but what about something like the Fairness Doctrine again, where there are discussions that really are representing multiple sides? I definitely think we should dive into that, of course. Um, it would, my initial thought in terms of trying to implement that nowadays 
is people crying, you know, freedom of speech, limiting my speech, limiting on, on terms of what content, um, in terms of a, maybe a right wing radio show or left wing radio saying, saying, I don't want to do this. You can't make me, so I'm not going to do this. And I think that's a possibility to like upset people, but I guess more so the biggest thing at the end of the day is that due to social media and the ability to kind of become your own entrepreneur and create your own shows, there's really not a overarching figure that's going to be telling these people what to do anymore. People right. could create their own show, yeah. monetize their own show, and make their own rules. So that's what they're going to do. And that's and the people they appeal to. They'll keep on doing it. Kind of the echo chambers I talk about constantly. And they're just going to feed into what their audience is right. uh, liking. So that's, as of right now, the individual yeah. entrepreneur is probably the biggest problem with that nowadays is that there's really no central centralization in terms of all these shows that exist as of uh, as of right now what do they say the cart and horse have left the barn it's those days are over yeah no i think you're absolutely right about it um and even if it had continued uh up until the age of the internet which is you know what now and streaming services and, and, and all the social media, 25 years, it wouldn't have lasted through that because that would have just, you know, everyone again has their own, their own, uh, news channel. Correct. Um, ultimately from what I've seen, and I think you have to have a certain level or a certain kind of personality to ride this kind of nuanced path, because for the most part, people generally want to just attach to themselves to these very extreme positions. Like it's all left. It's all right. And it's easy to do that. Yeah. And it's not, that's not life. That's not reality. Exactly. But it's easier to emotionally attach yourself to something that someone on the left and the right is saying because how they're kind of approaching these things is that they're adhering to what that person doesn't or can't have or that what that person doesn't have. And Go ahead. you see it nowadays as of right now where it's a lot of people on, let's say, the, the dating market when it comes down to it. A lot of people appealing to these red pill podcasts when they were very popular, they still decently popular. There's a reason why those shows kept on popping up is because those guys were alone. They can't have these beautiful women. So these guys were adhering to what they can't have. And the same thing with the left and the right, where the right people, people on the right are keep on reinforcing Donald Trump. Donald Trump has captivated people um, to an extreme degree. But they appeal to him and it's a lot of the things that he says, the Christian values and the people eat that right up. They go, they immediately go into if they go the Donald Trump, they route, they kind of go into that. The government is all kind of against it. It's the government is against uh, the Republicans. So they emotionally are invested into it automatically or, you know, they're against these Christian principles and they adhere to that. The left too. the left is like. America's racist, everybody's racist, the right is racist, sexist, homophobic, transphobic. So they appeal to that. All these negative connotations of what the other side is not giving me 
this side is and they keep on reinforcing it so they attach themselves to those of course whereas someone like me i approach this as like i mean it's much more nuanced you can definitely have this and you can have that you can be christian you don't have to be christian if you're lgbtq fine but not everybody is we're just talking about conversation it's not it's not connecting to them emotionally even though logically a lot of the stuff that i say makes sense because generally people aren't that way they they want to react instead of trying to understand the this stuff where um they're consuming it's very similar to media in the mainstream it's exactly the reason why bad and negative news gets pushed out more because that's right. what attaches to people immediately. It gets them emotional and it attaches them. There's also within the left and right, there's also right and wrong. And determining what's right is something that the media, whoever it is, I wish would be doing better. It's, and I don't think we see that enough. It's definitely tough. And to kind of take a step back, and this is where the nuance comes into it. Something that I understand, obviously, now more than I have back in the past, is that for the most part, unless you're a sociopath or psychopath or something like that, people have good intentions they think that their side is the right side that you're referring to everything that they're saying and spewing is in the betterment of society as a whole and it's a will be the best foot forward for american prosperity so they think that stuff that they're preaching in terms of individual identity uh, identic freedom when it comes to people on the left or Christian holy values when it comes to people on the right. They think this is the way to prosperity, which is why they believe in things so so deeply. So people inherently, I don't, nowadays, I don't see them as necessarily bad off rip. I think a lot of the things that they say are, can be bad and very stupid in my opinion. And but dangerous. At that point, and, and potentially dangerous. That's why approaching these people as they are evil is the incorrect way of approaching it. But approaching with the things that they're saying is evil is different. There's a difference between what they're saying. Because once you, it's possible. It's impossible to click to their brain once you have com enough conversation. It won't happen immediately, but it's possible. Or at the very least, you have the conversation with them. And there's a trickle down effect where the, the whispers around them hears the conversation and then their perspective gets uh, open. So well, you hit it. Oh, it's, it's being willing to talk instead of families to get together. They can't share their opinions. They can't have a conversation. I would love it. I think everyone should be watching your podcast. The fact is we need more conversation, less debate, more conversation. That's a bumper sticker. You know, but it's true. Well, I don't know if it's a bumper sticker yet. I mean, we could make it a bumper sticker, but but you know, less debate, more conversation. Yeah, and don't get me wrong. I mean, I'm a big fan of debate when it comes to other topics, but when politics, the purpose behind politics is to find solutions to make our society and government better. It shouldn't right. be the game. There shouldn't be a game being played to. Uh, I'm the winner. I the win this debate. No, it should be. 
now we need a system put in place and implemented for the betterment of me, the people I care about, and the people in my community. I think people need to understand the difference between the uh, between those things, of course. Um, but yeah, overall, I agree. And let's kind of touch into the, the main topic of substance. Now, like you've said, you've done a lot of things, including being an author. So I guess to start out for the people to kind of get to know you, even though I gave you an intro, who is uh, Gary Grossman um, and why are you kind of doing what you're doing as of right now? Do you want a great website like this? This is my podcast website where I direct the audience to come to watch the content, listen to the content, read the blogs and much, much more. If you want to have your own customizable podcast website, then join my affiliate link in my description to sign up for something called PodPage and they can help you customize an easy podcast website for your personal podcast. Sign up to get a discount now. Again, use the link in my description to join PodPage now. Okay, God, that is a great question. Thank you. Uh, Gary Grossman is a storyteller. Uh, Gary Grossman likes to um, get his voice out there. I uh, started as a ham radio operator and a disc jockey, a rock disc jockey, as we talked about. Uh, I then worked in television and local TV and doing documentaries in Boston, wrote for Boston newspapers, came out to California and uh, began writing and producing what I consider good shows, uh, informational shows, documentaries, news and information, um, how to shows. Uh, I, I, I like to tell people stories. Uh, I've done so many biographies of people. Uh, over the years um, that I'm a storyteller about their story or trans translating or, or uh, uh, retelling their story. As a novelist, uh, I tell my own stories or stories with a collaborator. I wrote a book on, uh, the first book I wrote uh, was on the old Adventures of Superman TV series with George Reeves. And I was telling the story of early television history and the story of, a, of the cast and crew that were paid $250, $500 an episode. Nothing, even in those days, basically, when they would do, and no residuals, but, uh, but a show that's lasted forever. And I, I wrote a book on the history of children's television called Saturday Morning TV, 30 years of all the shows you waited to watch. And I was telling the stories of the people who hosted the shows uh, that I watched, uh, the producers who made the shows, the stars of those programs. Um, so I'm a, I'm a storyteller. And it, it, when my business partner and I, uh, at the time, we had a company called Weller Grossman Productions. We produced about 10,000 shows for 40 different networks altogether. And uh, we caught the cable wave uh, in the 90s and in the 2000s when, when cable was really taking off and doing a lot, launching cable networks, helping launch cable networks. Um, in 2000, well, uh, I won't give away the date yet. Uh, Rob and I were at, in New York pitching the History Channel. And someone at the History Channel, someone said, at the History Channel, do you think we're running out of history? 
And I thought, oh my God, what, what do I say here? Uh, what I think in retrospect, they were wondering was whether or not they should dip their toe in reality TV and stop focusing so much on documentaries. But I didn't think of that at the time. I said, well, who knows what's gonna happen tomorrow? Well, the reason I didn't give away the date before is that that was September 10th, 2001. Mm. We know what happened on September 11th, 2001. A couple of days later, Rob and I were able to get a car out of the Westchester County Airport uh, north of New York and drove back to Los Angeles because no planes were running, they were flying anywhere in the country. And on the way back to California, I started thinking about, well, if it took six, seven years of plotting to bring down the World Trade Center towers from the first attempt to blow it up, which was a bomb uh, in the parking lot under the building, what about a plot that might take 35, 40 years in the making? Well, what would be big enough to wait that long knowing in the United States, we have the patience of a gnat. If a movie isn't a hit over the first weekend, it begins to go away. If a rock song didn't hit the top 40 in my rock and roll days, uh, it kind of began to slide off the charts. TV could be canceled after two or three episodes if it isn't working. Yet the Crusades were like yesterday to the Middle East. The memory is much longer. China has a hundred year plan you know, that they have even talked about in terms of controlling more of the world, at least economically. What would be so important in this country to wait that long? And I thought of a sleeper cell spot, a uh, plot, sleeper, sleeper cell plot to take over the presidency of the United States. And it was formulated by a Russian sleeper cell spy that began in the 60s, that by the time came, the book came out in 2005, and that is executive actions, this senator from Vermont actually gets elected president, and he's a spy for Russia. So uh, that was the first book that I began thinking about driving back cross country. Um, I didn't tell my wife I was writing a book. I didn't tell anybody I was writing a book because I didn't know if I really was. <laughs> One day I came home from my TV job at our company and I, my wife meets me at the front door and she says, um, what's this? It's the file folder. She's holding a file folder. And I looked at the file folder and said, well, what do you mean? She said this and she put the folder down. And I really looked at it and I said, oh, that. She said, yeah, that. Well, that was a file folder containing ways of killing people surreptitiously by poisoning them mm -hmm. or through other means that would be hard to do for, a, uh, for, for an investigator uh, to discover. And I said, oh, <laughs> oh, that. I'm writing a novel <laughs> and, and you know, I'm not trying to kill you. I'm writing a novel. If you remember earlier, my wife called on the phone and I did answer right away with the text. Um, and I brought her right to the computer and I showed her, yes, you see, here's where this character and this happens to the characters assassinated. Um, 
that became a new career for me as a new way to tell stories and to kind of factor the news. The first book, Executive Actions, was on the sleeper cell spot, uh, plot. Still can't say it. Sleeper cell plot. The second book was on the power of hate radio. We live with the power of hate radio. The third plot uh, in the next book, in um, Executive Command, was on uh, what I consider the most vulnerable natural resource that we have and the easiest to tamper with, the most vulnerable and most valuable, and that's water. What if terrorists were poisoning water in different parts of the country? Not so much that everyone in that area would be killed, but you'd be afraid to drink whatever water you have. What happens to the markets then? And then the next book was on a uh, plot by the North Koreans. And uh, once again, focusing on the presidency. So I began telling stories that were on the edge of what might be the news cycle, but could be real. And then a few years ago, I hooked up with Ed Fuller on a series of books. The first one was Red Hotel, the second Red Deception, and the third Red Chaos, which is the new one out. Ed Fuller is was a... Um, high-level executive for Marriott. He was the president of Marriott International. I met him through a friend of mine, coincidentally, while walking our dog one night. Our friend was walking his dog in the neighborhood. Um, his dog was named Shadow. Kind of works with what my friend had done. He wrote the first three Pierce Brosnan James Bond movies, spy movies. Has a dog named Shadow. Makes sense. He said, oh, Gary, I've been looking for you. Uh, I have a friend who's interested in a collaborator uh, to work with on uh, a novel. I said, well, you know, I've never worked with a guy. I work with collaborator, collaborators in TV, but not in, in, in books. He said, you should meet with him. And he told me what he did. And I thought, well, what do I have in common with the former president of Marriott? I work right here on the computer. I have uh, contacts in the White House and different areas in, in national security. but this guy, I, he said, you have to meet with him. I did. And in 30 seconds, right now, 30 seconds, I realized he was as much in the anti-terrorism business as the hotel business. Marriott Heights Hotels, blown up in Jakarta. Hotel in uh, Cairo, Fall of Mubarak. What do you have to do? Get the people out safely. When Gaddafi fell in, in Tripoli, what do you have to do? You've got to get your people out. I realized he had as much contact in, in, in intelligence services and former military, he was an officer in Vietnam, um, as he did in the business world. So my first question back to him was, who do you have on speed dial? And he said, well, you know, we work together. I'll let you know that. So in the course of writing the books, now we're on the fourth book, Red Ultimatum, which will be out later next year, uh, I have learned what much of what he knows hotel staff to do. I don't stay in a hotel above the seventh floor anymore. Why? Because I learned that that's as high as 
uh, hook and ladders will go. If there's an attack, if there's a fire, you want to get out. Uh, the books are loaded with his stories and then in put in fictional settings. And yet time after time, people say, how did you know that? Or why were you thinking about that? And as a storyteller, telling fictional stories, what I really try to do is think the unthinkable. If you think the unthinkable, you come up with what might be plausible and unknowable and really worth writing about and making other people think about. So to your question, I'm a storyteller. That's Gary Grossman in all forms. All right. Excellent. Excellent. Uh, very interesting story, especially everything that you kind of uh, went through to, in your in your process, of course. Um, especially the the aspect of a lot of your stories, obviously being fictional, but has a certain plausibility behind the events that is going on, and it makes you think about potential contingencies of how society could operate. But but depending on certain circumstances, of course. Um, so with that said, you mentioned it. Uh, your most recent book, as of um, as of right now, Red Chaos. Can you kind of tell us like what is it about and why did you start writing this book in particular? Great, thank you. Um, and and as you see, I have a I have Red Chaos cup, so I um, constant. You know, years ago, somebody said, and 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 it, it lives with me today. Without publicity, something terrible happens. Nothing. That was P.T. Barnum. You have to promote your your podcast. I have to promote all the things that I do and the TV shows. So, uh, but I also am constantly reading. Ed is constantly with his contacts at the FBI and intelligence services, looking at the world, looking at things. Through all the books, we have a bad guy. He is a loosely disguised Vladimir Putin. His name is Nikolai Gorshkov in the books. And he has been trying to do the things that um, um, Putin is doing. Uh, we were looking at Ukraine before Ukraine blew up, knowing that that was going to happen. We're looking at, we've looked at NATO and something that he wanted to destabilize before that even began happening with being so apparent in uh, the Trump administration. Uh, in Red Chaos, uh, we were looking at a, at a way to get into climate change, but it wouldn't be a book about climate change. It was a book about oil and money. And as uh, Senator McCain said, uh, Russia is a gas station posing as a country. Russia has the oil that China needs. How does Russia get the China the uh, the oil to China more effectively than going all the way around, or down, shipping through lanes that might not be as accessible and easy as the Northern Sea Route, and that is the area above uh, 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 the uh, continental Asia and Europe, but basically at the North Pole. It's through the Northern Sea Route, which is much more accessible now because of climate change. The ice flows are melting. Russia has, I think by the last count, 36 icebreakers. We have two. One of them's not working. 
So who controls the northern sea, sea route? Russia does. And the plot of Red Chaos is all about that and how Russia wants to not only control the oil flowing to and going to China, but also to control the marketplace of everyone else's oil. So through the course of the book, where do you, how do you affect that? Well, you affect it by making the Suez Canal unpassable with a terrorist attack. How do you do that? Choking the, uh, how do you do something else? Further, you choke the Sea of Hormuz so that oil can't get through in the other direction and the Panama Canal. Now Russia's basically really in control. How does a hotel executive, our lead character is based on Ed Fuller, uh, my co-author, uh, and he's portrayed in the book as a guy named Dan Riley. He does that because of what Ed Fuller did in real life. He sees something, he says something. He works with intelligent uh, groups around the world. He passes information on to people which is what I learned from my dad as an investigator in New York State. If you alone know something and you don't tell somebody else, nothing will happen with it or the worst will happen. I go back to 9-11. If you and I were working at a, 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 a pilot training company in Arizona and somebody walks in, Ray Allen says, yeah, I want, to, I want to learn how to fly a plane. I'm not interested in learning how it lands. Wouldn't you think, wouldn't you think maybe I should tell somebody that? Because you will have, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but if you're a pilot, you need to take a plane off, you need to fly it, and you need to land it. These people right. weren't interested in any of that. So you tell somebody. Well, Dan Riley is somebody who picks something up one place and starts thinking about it. If oil executives in, in Kenya and oil executives in England meeting, in oil executives meeting in Beijing are, are systematically being eliminated, why? Who would be behind that? Who do I need to talk with about that? And in the case of Red Chaos and Red Deception in the first book, Red Hotel, He's talking to the FBI, he's talking to the CIA, he's talking to other people on the crisis committee who are of the hotel that are made up of people from the former CIA, FBI executives, Joint Chiefs of Staff, retired generals. Um, and that's what makes us smarter if we share information. And, and I'll give you, and, and if you see something, say something. I was in New York. Um, sitting at a, 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 a bar waiting for my daughter who lived in New York to come in. And um, she was running a little late, sitting, having a drink. A guy sitting next to me had a package down below. He got up and he suddenly left. This is in Manhattan. And I sat and looked at the package. I didn't see him outside. I waited two minutes. Maybe two minutes is too long. I said to the bartender, there's a package down here that's in a, in a large bag. The uh, guy just left and I'm worried about what's in that. And he said, thank you for saying that. I know him. He's a regular, which doesn't make it right. 
but he's a regular. He just went out for a cigarette. It's going to be okay. And the guy did come back with a cigarette. But in Jakarta, in the Ritz Hotel, the person who planted the bomb was the florist who had been there for seven years. Had waited and been a sleeper at the hotel for seven years. This is something that Ed Fuller dealt with in real life. And as head of security, they were the first ones in after the explosion at the Marriott and the Ritz in Jakarta. So um, what Ed did was make me smarter. And also what he did in real life, and it runs through the books, the red doesn't deal with Russia as much as it deals with the threat assessment. The highest threat assessment is red. If a hotel goes red, this is what he did in real life. It means you put bollards in front of the hotels. We see them everywhere now. It means you take the American flag down. It means you have bomb sniffing dogs in front and security and you check every package going in and out. Short of red, there are other colors, orange and blue. Uh, we decided not to have green because green makes you think everything's okay. But these days not everything is okay. So it starts with another color. So the Red Hotel books and the executive action, the exe executive action series, they're all really about the real world fictionalized, but honestly, very, 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 very real with very real threats. I, I, we go to uh, restaurants now, we've you know, traveled in the US and if we go to Europe, uh, I, I've seen walls, there's a wall right in front of me. I've seen walls in, in so many cities. My wife has looked out at wonderful people having a great time. And I say, honey, it's time for us to switch. I know a little bit more of what to look for. Enjoy the wall, I'm looking out. And in, you know, if I were to go to Paris or London today or Washington DC or New York, LA even, um, that's what I want to look at. And by the way, who are the people who were called into Washington after 9-11 to say, what are we not thinking about? They were the people like Bruce Feirstein, the James Bond writer, other screenwriters, movie directors of thriller films, screenwriters of thriller films, and big name authors I had not written at that point. They were the ones who were called into the Pentagon, the CIA, and the State Department and asked, what should we be thinking about that we're not thinking about? That, isn't that interesting? Yeah, it definitely is an interesting perspective um, when it comes down to what the story is trying to emanate to the audience, obviously. And it, it begs a very interesting question in terms of safety and obviously risk management. I mean, for myself, I, I don't take any unnecessary risks. Um, I don't go to certain areas because, hey, man, uh, that's just not an area I want to deal with. So I always am on my P's and Q's, but I don't let, obviously, fear run my life, of course. Yeah. But the reason why it begs an interesting question, we actually had a podcast episode back in the past regarding freedom versus safety. And I guess this is an interesting question for you, uh, for you to tackle is the want for society is for the people to live in joyful free lives safe lives as well with that in mind we should have or should we have more stringent systems 
security in place ensure the prosperity the safety of the people themselves so in that way basically the question is should we sacrifice a little bit of our freedom for our security in society I love the question, and, and and you served in the armed forces, and you know know the importance of security, and training, and what to look for. Um, my my opinion is not every place is a target, but places that are soft targets need to be more secure. Uh, for example. In Los Angeles, um, there is a shopping area outside called the Grove. And I was very concerned that a car, and it's open, a car, a truck could have driven right in from uh, uh, two areas, three areas actually, driven right into the Grove. It's one of the most popular places in LA. And I thought, this is absolutely disaster waiting to happen. Well, Bruce Fierstein, again, the author I mentioned, the uh, screenwriter, was part of a red team, from what I understand, hired by one of the branches of intelligence to go in to look at different places like the Grove and, and airports, things of that sort. What can we do? Well, what did they do at the Grove? They put in bollards so uh, cars could not go right in. And where there was an open area, they always have cars uh, show cars stacked up so you can't drive in. It doesn't affect the enjoyment of being there. It does make a target harder. And as Ed Fuller taught me, told me, uh, in India, in uh, Mumbai, uh, his hotel was targeted. They noted the surveillance teams coming in. They immediately went from their basic um, uh, threat assessment to the highest. It as soon as they did that, it was too hard a target to, to attack, and another hotel was attacked. So I think uh, soft targets, where people are congregating, we have to be more vigilant about them. Uh, and, and to some extent, we have to rely on our good judgment, do we go there or not go there, and the good judgment and good corporate citizenship of the people who run them. Are we, do we go out to dinner? Absolutely. Do we walk down the street? Absolutely. Uh, do I go out at night without walking my dog? Absolutely not. Because uh, that's just in Los Angeles, not a smart idea these days and in many other cities. Uh, do we sacrifice to your question? Uh, we're not living it in the, in the uh, 1950s anymore. And as much as people think, oh, the 1950s were great, 1950s were not so great for everybody. We know that. But, uh, but they were safer. Uh, I used to bike around in my hometown everywhere. Did we let our kids do the same thing here? No, we did not. So I, I, I think we don't have to sacrifice, but we have to change. What's, what's your opinion on that? And what did you come out from your discussion on that? So for me, it definitely depends on the the situation, very similar to what you were kind of talking about in terms of soft targets. Um, one thing that I've brought up consistently to kind of give an example, because I've, I've had this conversation several times, is that a lot of states, more than half the states in the country now, 
are transitioning to uh, permitless carry. So you don't need a permit. You don't need training. You can just go buy your gun when, as long, um, whenever you want, basically. Obviously, you probably have to be certain age, certain requirements. Um, but yeah, for the most part, you could just go buy your gun. Most places, if it's a private seller, don't even require a background check. So you get your gun, you have your gun, nothing, no permit, no training. Nobody can t really know your qualifications with a gun, but you have it. And the conversation I was having with these people is that for me personally, I've seen no evidence that this is the betterment of society. I am not a, I'm not a believer in permitless carry. I don't think it's a smart thing for society. And I think the only reason why we're doing it is to appeal to the people who are such pro second amendment, they don't really care about the consequences. So with that said, I brought up the contingent. If we're going to live in a society with permitless carry, then we should have more security in these areas that we should have more security in public schools. We should have more security in malls in these public areas. So if we are making ourselves more free, so to speak, with like the freedom to have a gun for whatever reason, because people love guns, guns are cool and all, but I don't know. I don't get the obsession behind it. If we're going to allow them this certain type of freedom, we need to match it with the the security that's gonna, that needs to be there for worst case scenario. Ultimately, my, my opinion regarding it is I think our society should progress towards more security at the end of the day. And as of right now, even though we have like these freedoms of thoughts, of ideology, of even speech to more so now, and regardless of who you are, say, do, protest, whatever you want. Like you said before, it doesn't seem safer. It For some reason, our society now doesn't seem safer. Is that in part due to the increased coverage of how dangerous society is? Possibly. But there is a certain level of instinct that people are starting to realize. And it even goes beyond certain like criminal organizations, to be honest, because we see this in politics. The increase of wants of committing political violence is increasing both on right and the left. So people are becoming more upset. People are becoming more fed up and people are resorting to violence and being willing to commit violence. So if criminal organizations, gangs doing that, of course, we have people wanting to do political violence. And so probably the worst of it all, because of how stupid it is, is people so ready to be on social media that they will do whatever, do whatever, causing a dramatic scene you never know what may happen afterwards. So and that gets back to everyone having their own channel and their own voice broadcasting exactly. to the world. Exactly. So ultimately, people have more freedoms to kind of be who they are, but our security is not matching those freedoms. So yeah. as of right now, society is, for some reason, this current America is more dangerous it has been and in the past with less freedom. So there's, that's definitely a question we have to ask ourselves is, is this the right way we want to go? Because I remember when I was a kid and I would ride my bike in different neighborhoods, who cares when it's past nighttime. And I mean, to be fair, I lived in military housing, so I'll give that caveat, but we were kids 
walking outside at 2 a.m. consistently. Right. Nothing wrong. We would do that constantly. I couldn't even imagine doing that nowadays for people just yeah. walking around at night like that. You can't, you can't and, 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 and you shouldn't. And the world has changed. And, um, and, and I'll make a pretty bold statement. Um, I blame, for starters, a lot of daytime television. A friend of mine was executive producer of one of the big daytime talk shows. But, uh, and I'm not talking about, you know, an Oprah show, but I'm talking about a kind of thing like Jerry Springer that, you know, we used to look at that and go, you know, isn't this silly? Well, what that was is now what Congress is. And that kind of discourse and the, the screaming and yelling and thinking that you can, you can do all those things, the lack of civility that's there is also the sense of lack of civility on the street. I used to, uh, you know, enjoy is not the right word, but you have an argument while, you know, you're at somebody is at a parking spot. No, that was my, no, I got here. I won't do that anymore. I won't engage in any road rage or any argument with anyone on the street because I don't know if that person is carrying a gun. And I'm certainly not doing it. And I'm not going to do it just because that person's going to do it. I did go to a gun range. Um, I fired shotguns as a kid. Uh, again, rural New York State. <clears throat> I didn't have one, but uh, you know, we would go out to gun range. A couple of years ago on Father's Day, my, my wife said, um, let's go with the boys to a gun range. I said, what, really? She said, yeah, I want to feel, I hate guns, but I want to feel what it feels like. I want to know what it feels like to hold one and to shoot one. We had uh, a look like a biker dude as a trainer. And um, I thought, okay, what's this going to be like? Um, he said, let me tell you something about guns. You got to keep them locked if you have them. You've got to keep them away from kids. And you've got to know if you shoot in that direction and you're living in an apartment building, that bullet is going to go through to the next apartment and you have a chance of killing somebody. All right. Now let's go out and here's how to shoot them. We went out <laughs> to the range. Uh, I have to say my wife did the best of all of us. So she was she she was the sharpshooter of the day. We came back in and he went through the same things again and said, how does it feel? And we all talked about how empowering it felt and how powerful it felt, but how ill-equipped we were to use it right. in a crowded place or make a decision to use it. I don't take anything away from people who know how to do it. And are responsible and are law-abiding, but open carry scares the living fill-in-the-blank out of me. It really uh, does. Yeah. Overall, like I said, I'm not a fan. And I think something to also point out, because I want to kind of make sure the point is very clear from my stance i think the majority of people are good people um, i agree i totally agree with you 
I one of my prior guests, uh, she was a conflict resolutionist. Um, that's probably not the right title, but it sounds good for her for what she talks about. One of the things she says, which I agree with, it says, imagine the individual and imagine you have a baby in the car and the car is on fire. How many people will rush to that car to break that baby out? And I would say probably 90 percent of people will see that situation and want to yeah. save the baby. Right. Mm -hmm. So that tells you that these people are good people at the end of the day. And the reason why that's important to bring out is I don't think there's more bad people. But in our society today, with more people being mentally unwell, there's mental unrest because of lack of trust in our institution and system. There is lack of trust in cops. There's um, more need to be kind of someone because of social media and people are just more skittish because of all the media coverage of all the shootings matter of fact there's like a there was a shooting in a walmart in a sit in a city about 20 minutes from me someone got just got went in there just started shooting in walmart and i think there was a shooting in a movie theater that i heard somewhere else a, a couple of days ago and i'm i'm thinking about these situations and i'm like the only thing that's come to my mind one obviously be protected, have your own gun. But again, I think people need to understand this. Just because you have a gun doesn't mean you're going to save the day. Now, honestly, yeah. honestly, your best case scenario is to run away. And that's the best case scenario. Right. Um, right. Unless you're right. like, right. Exactly. Free. Unless uh, you're well-trained, a well-trained, qualified individual, you're probably just going to make things worse if we're being completely honest. And, and that, takes a judgment call in the right. moment on experience. I'll Not just agree. training on how to use a gun, but an experience on how to use a gun in a volatile situation. Oh, yeah. Exactly, exactly. And the other part that I think about is, why doesn't a Walmart have armed security? Why doesn't a <laughs> movie theater have armed security? Because I live in a state where permless carry exists. Like, if someone walks in with a gun into the movie theater, does nobody have the capability to defend against this person when we know this is a permless carry uh, state? I mean, there. I would walk out. I would leave. Honestly, if I, I saw that with with my wife or my kids, I would leave because that is at least my training now that. It's it it has become an un, unsafe situation uh, uh, environment rather than a safe environment in the dark. You know, yeah, it's it's a uh, tough because we understand with all these stories about mass shootings and everything. Even though percentage wise, it's still a very very minor amount, but still more than pretty much all, all the countries in the world, especially all the developed countries in the world. That is, uh, it's. It, it really take it really is a a tough situation that we're going on in current society with the uh, security that we probably should increase, especially at certain areas of their society. I stand by schools; all schools definitely should have it at the very least. They um, need now. They absolutely didn't used to need them. We used to have these duck and cover drills that were silly. Okay, you're gonna get under the desk because it's you know nuclear explosion. Good luck with that. Those were ridiculous. 
And that was propaganda. Today, today it's real. And it's not a nuclear blast. It's, it's a crazy person coming into the school. We have to protect them. Absolutely. Agreed. And even if you don't want to use cops and cops and police departments have another other words that they have to abide by, we probably should more have more privatized security at the very least to hire at these public institutions at the very least. But with that said, we're coming to our benchmark, of course, the end of the show. So do you have anything else you want to say you plug before we start wrapping things up? Well, you know, I just, you said before we went on, we were going to have a discussion and I love this kind of environment where it's, it's not just me, it's you and we're trading ideas and we're talking and we're, 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 we're raising the level of um, uh, discourse. Uh, I get to do a little promotion, which is great on, on the books. And I appreciate that. And I encourage everyone to go to, you know, Amazon or order through their local bookstores and the the one we're selling right now is well all of them but red chaos which is which is terrific but also read newspapers listen to different radio stations and watch different news channels get your source of the sources of information from multiple places i do that to be able to write better i do it to be a better citizen I couldn't be as good a father and my wife as good a mother if we were just telling them every everything through a narrow channel. So um, we, we talked about it before. Instead of the silo, vertically turn that on the side, broaden your horizons. Um, this has been great. This is fabulous conversation. And I'm a fan now of what you do and we'll be logging on and and following you thank you thank you very much um we're definitely going to continue the message that we have on the podcast here continue the conversations and um some that we're going to reach certain areas certain ideas we're probably going to start implementing starting next year for this podcast and for everything we're connected to so Appreciate you coming on, Gary. Appreciate everybody who's listening. Rate it five stars. If you will, go to the website, www.purplepoliticalbreakdown.com. All Gary's information will be in the link in terms of his website where you can get all his information. And you can find his profile on my website as well. So hope you all enjoyed. Y'all have a good one. Uh, Merry Christmas. Take care. And we'll check it out, y'all. We got what you need. We're all living in apartments, condos, vans. Well, dude, even you can have a studio. A studio in a box. Yes, we can help you with that right here at Blind Knowledge. We work on your budget, and we figure out your measurements. We'll get you the best sound for the best price. Let me know, 877-237-1143, or at blindknowledge.com. Yep.